happened to me again. I am pulling at a rope, and I'm trying to get up the holy mountain on this rope. But then I realize the rope never ends, because what I'm actually doing is pulling on a thread. If you're looking up a picture of Moses, and all you do is put horns after his name, you will unlock centuries worth of interreligious, cultural, artistic baggage. Why in Renaissance art is Moses depicted with horns? Look it up. This is not subtle. I'm talking he has horns coming out of his head. Moses, the same prince of Egypt, parting the waters, has devil horns. I think it looks fucking cool, but I had no idea why he was depicted like that. That was the thread. I decided I wouldn't research it, that I would instead wait for the moment in the Bible where devil horns come out of Moses' forehead, and then I would finally know why. But that moment actually happened without me realizing it. Exodus 34.29 And it came to pass, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not, that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. 3430. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. It is here that I must warn you. If you listen any further, you're going to fall into the matrix, down the rabbit hole that has consumed my life for two weeks straight. This is the point of no return. 3430 says, His face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. NIV. The people of Israel saw the radiance of Moses' face. New Living Translation. And behold, the skin of his face shone. English Standard Version. And King James, behold, the skin of his face shown. And when Moses came down from the Mount Sinai, he held the two tablets of the testimony, and he knew not that his face was horned from the conversation of the Lord. And Aaron and the children of Israel, seeing the face of Moses horned, were afraid to come near. This is the Dewey Rames translation, so called for Douai, France where the English college is where it was translated into English from the Latin Vulgate, and Reims, France, where their translation of the New Testament was first published in 1582, followed by the Old Testament almost 30 years later. Why did it take so long? Because this was in the middle of the English and Irish Reformation. What was the Reformation about? Well, King Henry VIII wanted a divorce from his wife, Catherine of Aragon. The Catholic Church didn't like this. He didn't like that. And the people didn't like that the Catholic Church had become so corrupt. And so, the Protestant Reformation. It was a bad time for the Catholic Church. So in one of many of their efforts to reconsolidate and reassert their power, the Catholic Church commissioned 
the translation of the Dewey Rames Bible. Now, first, one important thing and one not so important thing. I've referred to this as the Dewey Rames Bible, but the place in France is indeed called Reims. It's hard to say. It's R H E I M S. It's French. That's just how the language is. It's nuts. But because the translation is such a popular English translation, not everybody calls it that. You're probably going to hear it called the Dewey Reims or the Dewey Reims. But in French, the best that I can pronounce it, it's Dewey Reims. A lot of important French history in Reims. It's where Charles VII's coronation was held, making him king of France. Joan of Arc's crowning achievement. (laughs) Anyway, that was the non-important one. To understand the mystery of Horned Moses and the reason why the Dewey Rames Bible translates very clearly that Moses' face was horned instead of shining, we have to go back to the source material for the Dewey Rames. As I said before, this is the Latin Vulgate translation, commissioned by Pope Damasus I in the year 382. The Vulgate is a translation into the Latin of the time from the Old Latin of the Vetus Latina Gospels by the priest, theologian, historian, and translator Jerome and later Saint Jerome of Striden. He dedicated his entire life to creating an official Latin translation of the Bible, and his efforts made him a saint. And today he's looked upon and named as a doctor of the church, a title reserved only for those saints who have contributed so integrally to the church through their writings or their research that they have created a foundation. The Latin Vulgate is such a foundation. Even today, over a thousand years later, some of those words that he translated exist as part of the new Vulgate used by the Catholic Church. Now, the Vulgate itself. Instead of translating from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament and New Testament, Jerome went all the way. He learned Hebrew, studied it, and based his translation on the original Hebrew. Understandably, he ran into some problems. Now, the operative word in Hebrew is karan, coming from the root keren, meaning horn, ray, foundation, or principle. We see instances where karan is meant to refer to light shining out in a ray from someone. This was translated in the Septuagint as glorified, as a way of saying that something came out from him in a way that grew and fell, like a ray of light. But Jerome specifically adhered not to the metaphorical, but to the literal translation of Quran as horn. Moses had horns on his face. Why did he do this? He was distracted. He didn't understand it. Some people try to call this a mistranslation. I've read other interpretations online that try to say Jerome definitely didn't mean horns on his face. Horns are demonic. We can't go around saying Moses had horns on his face. They can't. But I can. I'm the non-believer. I can do whatever I want. I think the horns are badass. But what's the deal? Did he really make a mistake? In 1988, Bena Alicia Medjuk a McGill University Department of Jewish Studies graduate student tried to explain this in another way in his thesis, Exodus 34, 29-35, Moses' horns in early Bible translation and interpretation. In it, 
Medjuk explains that Jerome was very well aware of the many interpretations of the word keren. He says that Jerome consulted with Jewish scholars of his time in order to depict Moses, not with a glorification of light, but with a glorification of strength and authority. And when Moses came down from the Mount Sinai, he held the two tablets of the testimony, and he knew not that his face was horned. If that were it, it'd be an interesting enough story. But from here on, this specific word choice unintentionally creates consequences for a millennia to come. Now, before we get there, it's important to understand the history of what horns have meant to humans of the ancient world. Our modern culture shies away from horns or looks at them derogatorily as signs of the devil. But we don't know that horns are demonic because they're from pagan gods. There's the horned goddess Hathor and Isis, both from Egypt, and another Egyptian deity, Ammon. There's Baal and El, ancient Semitic horned bull gods. The Greek goat god Pan has horns. In the Bible, Moloch is a horned Canaanite deity who it appears demanded child sacrifice. Now, what is the common thread between all of these gods? They're not the right god. The reason why Christianity looks down on horns today is part of a long tradition of rejecting the gods of other religions. Pliny the Elder was a Roman author, philosopher, and commander in the Roman Empire. He wrote the Naturalis Historia, an immense work now considered the blueprint for our modern encyclopedias, in describing the shells of ancient mollusk fossils that he found. Pliny referred to them as Ammonis Cornua, the horns of Ammon, because of the Egyptian god Ammon, also known as Amun-Ra, a god typically depicted wearing the horns of rams. Now, hundreds of years before this, in the year 331 BC, Alexander the Great conquered Egypt and was told by an oracle in Siwa, Egypt, known in those times as the Oasis of Amun-Ra, that he, Alexander the Great, was the son of Ammon. Now, he also saw himself as the son of Zeus. So now, Alexander called himself the son of Zeus Ammon, who is depicted as the regular Jupiter, but with the ram's horns of Ammon. Alexander went so far as to mint coins with an image of himself with the same ram's horns, declaring to his entire empire that he should only be known as the son of a god. The reply from Sparta is recorded, and it's hilarious. If Alexander wishes to be a god, let him be a god. (laughs) As a side note, he is actually referred to as the two-horned in the Quran. Interesting. So, the ancient idea of horns were those of majesty, of power, but more importantly, divinity. With the rise of monotheism, we see that this tradition comes to be rejected. And then, a new tradition springs up in its place. We don't see the use of horns to depict Moses in art until about the 1100s. But when this starts to catch on, it becomes a Renaissance motif to depict Moses, and due to a rising tide of anti-Semitism, Jews, not with light, 
but with horns. How did we get here? As dictated by Jewish law in the Mishnah Torah, compiled between 1170 and 1180 AD, a man's head should be covered during prayer, although there is some debate whether or not it should be covered at all times. This led to Jewish men in those times to wear a very recognizable horned skullcap, in German known as a Judenhut, or Jewish hat. Still, why the 1100s? I've read some reports that anti-Semitic fervor may have been affected by the Crusades, a time when anyone not of the Christian faith was a heathen. But attitudes towards the Jewish people during one of Christianity's first great surges of power was not only not positive, but forever tarnished by the blood of Jesus. Christianity was in. Judaism was out. The Turks and Saracens may not have shared their faith, but medieval Christendom saw Jews as directly responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. Around a hundred years later, things would not improve. On May 10th, 1267, an ecclesiastical synod meeting at Vienna mandated that Jews should wear the horned hat that they had freely worn in the past at all times so that they could be identified. This is after the Fourth Council of the Lateran, a meeting in which bishops and church authorities decided that a special dress code should be mandated for Jews and Saracens to distinguish them from Christians so that no Christian shall come to marry them, ignorant of who they are. Sounds a little paranoid to me. Due to these mandates, the idea of how Jews would be depicted in medieval art would change dramatically. Jews were expected to wear signifying clothing. The most common way they would enforce this would be with a yellow ring or circle of cloth, known in Latin as a signum, which was sewn onto the clothing of men, women, and children. It's exactly as bad as it sounds. In her book, The Horned Moses in Medieval Art and Thought, Ruth Melenkoff signifies St. Jerome's supposed mistranslation, placing horns on Moses' head to be instrumental in how Jews came to be depicted physically as being in league with the devil. Again, how did we get here? Well, it may have been a part of how this all started. We talked about St. Jerome's decision to use the literal translation of the word karan to mean horned in a well-researched and very convincing article called The Anti-Semitic Origin of Michelangelo's Horned Moses by Stephen Bertman, published by Purdue Press in 2009. Bertman argues that Jerome and everyone who followed after took advantage of the horned translation to cast Jews in a negative or even demonic light. As an extension of the charge that they were Christ killers, Jews were accused of ritual murder that they reenacted the crucifixion of Jesus by kidnapping and slaughtering innocent children and then drained their blood so that it could be baked into matzot or drunk as Passover wine. The demonization of Moses in particular and the Jews in general was amplified during the Middle Ages by the frequent depiction of horned demons on places of Christian worship. Arguably the most shocking image of Satan is in Copo di Marco Valdo's 13th century illustration of the Last Judgment on the mosaic ceiling of the baptistry in Florence. He later goes on to say that Michelangelo probably based his statue of Moses on this painting. Wild accusation, 
More on that later. Here's what he has to say about Jerome. By depicting Moses with horns, St. Jerome was endowing Moses with features that Christians would recognize as the attributes of a monstrous, even satanic figure. This would be true because to believing Christians, the narrative content of the Old Testament was viewed through the theological lens of the New. In Revelation 12, there is a multi-headed, fiery red dragon with ten horns that persecutes a pregnant woman who eventually gives birth to a male child, Jesus. Revelation 13 depicts two wild animals, one with ten horns that emerges from the sea and another with two horns that comes out of the earth. Had Jerome followed the Septuagint version instead and described Moses' face as glorified, on the other hand, he would in one stroke have likened Moses to Jesus. Christian readers would have recalled the episode in the Gospels, Matthew 17:2, in which Jesus' disciples saw their leader on a mountain where he was transfigured and his face shone like the sun. By having implied such a comparison through this alternate translation, Jerome would have undermined his theological position, elevating rather than diminishing the stature of Moses and of Judaism in the eyes of Christian readers. Now, all of this makes sense, but it doesn't mean that St. Jerome hated Jews. Repeatedly in his letters, Jerome declared his unequivocal hatred for Jews and for all things Jewish, notwithstanding the fact that Jesus was himself a Jew and his early followers were Jewish. (laughs) Ah. Noting their rejection of the Messiah and their treacherous complicity in Jesus' execution, he shouts in letter 127, Jew, behold the hands you nailed to the cross. The true etymology of Jews, he satirically observes, is Judas. He decries their synagogues as satanic, freely confessing his contempt for the circumcised, their superstitions, their materialism, and their indolence. Their conscience, he charges, is stained red with Christ's blood. Their spiritual guide Moses, who signifies the law, is depicted as a sinner who did not deserve to enter the promised land and was saved not because of any inherent virtue of his own, but only through God's mercy. Indeed, Jerome's arduous study of Hebrew, disparaged by him as, quote, a harsh and guttural language, was initially undertaken not out of any respect for its spiritual tradition, but as a last resort, he reports, to take his mind off his own carnal desires. (sighs) Gotta translate, not masturbate. (laughs) We now continue forward to the Renaissance, or as mentioned in Bertman's paper, a Renaissance of hate. By the 15th and 16th centuries, the visual demonization of Moses and the Jews began to penetrate the art of Italy. This influence coincided with government-sponsored and church-sanctioned acts of repression against Italian Jews and was consistent with the teachings of church fathers like Jerome and John Chrysostom. Here, he makes the obvious comparison of the signum, which the Jewish people were forced to wear, as being the equivalent of the biblical mark of Cain and the archetype of the compulsory yellow badge that was later worn by the Jews of Nazi Germany. The signa that Michelangelo saw worn by Jews on the streets of Florence and Rome were, in fact, duplicated in the Malermi Bible, the illustrated Italian edition of Jerome's Vulgate that Michelangelo consulted in choosing the subject matter for his frescoes. In other words, the modern oppression of Jews happening at that time was being reflected backwards 
as Jews in the book were also portrayed with the modern signum that they were forced to wear. Terrifying. This is how history can sometimes be written. A thing can continue for so long that nobody knows where the original idea came from. Take, for instance, the appearance of the devil. Horns on his head, hoofed feet, red all over. Sound about right? I've already pointed out that horns were not originally signs of demonhood, but divinity and power. Well, here's another made-up bit. The fact that the devil is red. Yep. That's not an ancient idea. His body is. Hooved feet with horns? We said it before. That's pan. A very old connection. But the color red. Very new. In the book A History of Opera, Milestones, and Metamorphoses, Burton Fisher writes, Marcel Junet sang Faust's Mephistopheles over a thousand times, providing the stereotyped image of opera characters as devils in red tights. Red is a striking color. It's the color of blood. It reminds us of the heat of fire. And it's entirely of our own invention. Yeah, I didn't know I was going to red pill you on the devil when I started this, but I told you we were going into the Matrix. Satan as a red goat guy? Made up. But I mean, obviously. So in this way, throughout time, misconceptions about the Jewish people have led not only to their oppression, but demonization. According to Bertman, Michelangelo was not trying to portray Moses as divine or powerful. Apparently, it's likely that he was playing a joke. From Bertman's article, if Moses' features, the beetling brow, the deep-set eyes, the prominent nose and downturned lips, the fearsome glare and the beard show, that Michelangelo also meant his Moses to resemble the bearded Julius II, the only pope to have worn a beard in over a thousand years. This satanic and Judaizing caricature would have constituted a final mocking act of revenge by an artist who had for so long chafed under the pope's willfulness. Rather than representing an innocent mistake as many have claimed, the horns of Michelangelo's Moses actually symbolize and serve to perpetuate a legacy of anti-Semitism that stretched from antiquity to the Renaissance. We're at an interesting point here, but started as a simple exploration into an artistic quirk in the way Moses is depicted, has now brought up a culture of anti-Semitism, a time period when Jewish oppression was the norm. Fittingly, one of Bertman's final nails in this coffin is the comparison of Michelangelo's famous statue of Moses to Copo di Marcovaldo's 13th century illustration of Satan in The Last Judgment. At first glance, it's easy to be convinced. Both figures are depicted as seated. Their mantles are over their legs, their legs apart. Moses' beard flows down in the same way that a human torso sticking out of Satan's mouth hangs over his chin. With this damning evidence, I was just about ready to believe him. Until I saw Bernardo Geofagni's statues of St. Matthew and San Luca. This features two men sitting down, legs apart, hands in their lap, holding a book. Even more similar, Geofagni's Isaiah. You see where I'm going with this? Again, I was going to end this here, 
but more and more research showed me a more complex reality than the one described in Bertman's article. So, before I wrap this up, I feel obligated to take this as far as I can, to get as close to the truth as I can, and to see what the picture tells me. I was helped in no small way by Malcolm McMillan and Peter J. Swales' observations from the refuse heap, Freud, Michelangelo's Moses, and Psychoanalysis, published in American Imago in the spring of 2003. They point to not only Chiofagni's statues, but Donatello's St. John the Evangelist as well. Quoting from the article, It certainly has the reputation of being an influence on Michelangelo, and the figure does hold a book, or more correctly, has the left wrist resting on the upper surface of a book on its knee, over which the hand and fingers are curled downward. Although it may seem to us to lack the vitality of Michelangelo's Moses, Gracia said that its curvilinear drapery emphasized, quote, the restless spiritual nature of the apostle, directly expressed by the intensity of his gaze and by his hands. The whole figure represents a noble and natural truth that has rightly led some critics to see it as a predecessor of Michelangelo's creations. Earlier in the article, Swales and Macmillan acknowledge, quote, we have no record of what Michelangelo wrote or told anyone about what he had intended Moses to represent. The few opinions provided by his contemporaries or near contemporaries, Giorgio Vasari, Ascanio Condivi, and Giovanni Paolo Lomazzo, slight though they are, are therefore doubly important. So, acknowledging the culture of anti-Semitism that we described in Renaissance Italy, what were contemporary opinions on Michelangelo's work? From Vasari, seated in an attitude of great dignity, Moses rests one arm on the tables he is grasping. The face of Moses is strikingly handsome, like that of a truly holy and awe-inspiring prince. It cries out for the veil to cover his face, so resplendent and dazzling does it appear. So perfectly in marble has Michelangelo expressed the divinity with which God had endowed that holy countenance. Moses today, more than ever, can truly be called the friend of God. He has prepared his body for the resurrection through the hand of Michelangelo. That's high praise. But this next quote provides an even deeper look. Well may the Jews continue to go there, as they do every Sabbath, both men and women, like flocks of starlings, to visit and adore it, since it is not human, but something divine that will be adoring. Well may the Jews continue to go there. What does this say about the opinions of Jewish people at the time? Again, the answer is slightly more complex. In her article, Vested Interest, Redressing Jews on Michelangelo's Sistine Ceiling, Barbara Witch describes the position of Jews living in the Holy Roman Empire in the 1400s. Unlike Muslims who are viewed as the infidel, Jews occupied a special position in Christian theology. Jews bore witness to the origins of Christianity and thus vouched for its truth. Moreover, the final conversion of the Jews prefaced the second coming of Christ and the end of time. As Paul had written in Romans 9.27, quoting Isaiah 10.12, the remnant shall be saved. Pope Innocent III's edict in favor of the Jews of 1199 explained, although the Jewish perfidy is to be condemned in every way, nevertheless, thou shalt not destroy the Jews completely. 
That's nice. <laughs> it's a real progressive stance. In accordance with the clemency that Christian piety imposes, we offer them the shield of our protection. This vacillation between repression and protection was reflected in civic legislation as well. However, complex daily interactions between Christians and Jews, from shared occupations such as the cloth trade to personal friendships, often defied the laws, which were only enforced intermittently and reflected the ambiguous position of Jews in Christian society. Michelangelo would have found a very different situation in Rome. The Roman Jewish community was free from expulsions and massacres, unlike so many Jewish communities in Europe, especially in the Holy Roman Empire. Cyclical accusations of host desecration, poisoning of wells, sorcery, and ritual murder were also virtually unknown in the city. The Roman Jews had developed a special relationship with the Pope, becoming known colloquially as the Pope's Jews. For the most part, they fared well under a general policy of protection and to a certain degree remained autonomous within the city. Their leaders served as intermediaries for the other Jewish communities, and they drew closer to the papal court as financiers and physicians. Humanists studied Hebrew texts with renowned Jewish scholars. By 1471, at least six synagogues existed, representing different national constituencies. During Michelangelo's lifetime, they were collapsed into one central synagogue, soon after the ghetto was officially established in 1555. The more I read about this, the persecution of the Jews seems to stem from not only racism, but societal convenience or religious convenience. Hatred against Jews because they believe something different. Hatred against Jews because it's convenient for the society at large. Jews had an important place in Italian culture, along with having a culture of their own, which, at least by some, was respected. I was interested to see another side to St. Jerome's disapproval of Jews. In James Barr's paper, St. Jerome's Appreciation of Hebrew, it was strange, he found, that by the Hebrew idiom Ishmael could be called a child when chronological calculations showed that he must have been 18. But, he goes on, we should not be surprised that a barbarous language has its idioms, for even at the present day in Rome, all sons are called infantes. Jerome, then, did not merely translate Hebrew mechanically, but sometimes found in it a catalyst to his literary and interpretive imagination. Many words, he goes on, had been left in transliteration in the past, either because they were hard to translate or because of the poverty of both Greek and Latin languages in comparison with Hebrew. Jerome had passed beyond a mere contempt for a barbarous tongue and began to appreciate its richness. Back to Michelangelo. In a letter from his friend, Leonardo Celayo, Leonardo says, I beg you not to forget us, we who are worse than the Jews. Barbara Wish comments, These statements were made in ordinary parlance, part of a vocabulary of intolerance, of which we have become so conscious. I think this is my overall problem with Stephen Bertman's assertion that Michelangelo's Horned Moses is a work of anti-Semitism. Michelangelo's Horned Moses is a work of art, crafted in the midst of a culture of anti-Semitism. To say otherwise simplifies the Jewish experience and dilutes historical reality. The relations between Gentiles and Jews in Renaissance Italy have a curious amount of cross-contamination that complicates the relationship beyond a simple oppressor and oppressed narrative. Barbara Wish acknowledges that in the art of the Sistine Chapel, the story of salvation was continually recreated 
as a glorious cosmic drama that indicted the Jews anew, while also saying, nonetheless, the broad scheme of Christian salvational history assured respectability to Judaism of the past, operative word past, to those personages who received God's Old Testament and who parented and nurtured Jesus. It guaranteed the same worthiness to the Jews of the future whose conversion would signal the second coming of Christ. These twin roles, a past covenant and an eschatological future, contributed to the survival of the Jewish minority in a Christian world. This curious paradox is no better displayed than in what Macmillan and Swales believe to be the true intention of Michelangelo in crafting his statue of Moses. In order to get a better picture, I've read many different articles by many different authors with many different interpretations. But there's one thing that Macmillan and Swales acknowledge that I haven't seen anywhere else, namely the moment that is being depicted in Michelangelo's Moses. The common belief seems to be that Moses has been startled by a sound, turns, looks to his left, and with a face full of fear and anger, beholds the Israelites worshiping the golden calf. There's one problem with this. The Moses Michelangelo depicts has horns. They are a token of Moses having seen the glory of God, which only occurs after the first tables are shattered. There is a second huge clue to this in the tables under Moses' right arm. They are blank. Moses has brought up new tablets to be written on by God. From the article, while we grant the possibility that Michelangelo may have adopted horns simply because it was becoming a convention to do so by the early 1500s, his representation seems to us more consistent with a specific artistic convention, one known to him that did not stray from biblical narrative. We therefore go further than Bremer to argue that Michelangelo's Moses acquires its horns at the very instant the Lord showed he was going to choose Moses and his people, renew the covenant, and personally lead them to the promised land. As described in the Bible, God allows Moses not to see his face because none can see his face and live, but he allows him to see his backside as he passes. This makes everything make sense. I am not an art historian, but I can't think of a better or more simpler way to describe what we see in Michelangelo's Moses. Moses, looking left, an expression of awe, wonder, fear, his left foot arched with the heel off the ground, moving sympathetically as he watches the Lord pass before him. And lastly, the horns. Because this was decorating the tomb of the Pope, wouldn't it make more sense, instead of depicting a moment of judgment, fear, and anger, instead for Michelangelo to depict Moses at the moment when he was closest to God than any human had been before. We also can't forget that this was meant to be one of about 40 statues, but the project was never funded. Another piece of information, the statue next to Moses was going to be St. Paul. From Macmillan and Swales, despite the church's anti-Semitic views and policy, its theological program demanded continuity between the teachings of the Old and New Testaments, and it was very common for figures from the New Testament to be linked with those from the Old. When Moses received the tables of the law, 
he looked on the Lord, and the Lord spoke directly to him. When Saul received his knowledge of the Gospels before he became Paul, it was by direct revelation from Jesus. In both cases, intense celestial light accompanied the communications. The light from the Lord caused Moses' face to change, to become horned, to shine, or become glorified, and the light from Jesus blinded Saul for three days. A nemesis though the Pope was to Michelangelo, this sounds less like retribution on the artist's behalf and more like an attempt to render a subject in the highest religious and aesthetic manner possible. One last note to reflect on is the position of Moses' right hand grasping his beard. This actually has a very specific meaning according to the time period. Seriously, from Macmillan and Swales. Up to the 14th century, the beard-grasping gesture, when it did not represent puzzlement, as in a discussion or disputation, was an oft-used convention, especially in artistic representations of narratives, to symbolize awe in the presence of the divine. The convention was revived in Michelangelo's time through the interest in the widely admired pseudo-antique Heraclius medal, and suggests that Michelangelo probably knew of it. What makes Michelangelo's Moses so interesting as a focal point of this investigation is that its existence involves all sides of the theological argument. Gentiles, Jews, the artist, the establishment, religious scholars and authorities, non-religious scholars and authorities, historians. Even Sigmund Freud wrote an entire essay on Michelangelo's Moses because it so captured his imagination. Although the horned Moses paradigm was not something created by the Jews, As we can see, they've had an interesting relationship with it. But a history of involvement goes back further than that. One of the more bonkers things I've read are descriptions of poems, one of which appears in the Peskita Rabati, a compilation of Agadic Midrash, biblical exegesis with more of a mythological, homilytic approach. In this case, the story of Moses is told in a poem called The Spring of Wisdom. In this wild poem, On his second time up the mountain, Moses ascends all the way into heaven, is adorned with horns by God, given a purple super-powered robe, and fights in the war of the angels. Here's an excerpt of Moses talking to the angel Samael. I ascended and trod a path in the heavens. I took part in the war of the angels and received a fiery Torah. I dwelt under a fiery throne and sheltered under a fiery pillar, and I spoke with God face to face. I vanquished the celestial retinue and revealed their secrets to humankind. I received the Torah from God's right hand and taught it to Israel, even further in an analogous work. Quote, Thereupon Moses began to fight with them, the angels, like an ox fighting with its horns. When the angels saw that Moses was winning, they fled, and he returned to the people from the heavenly wars. An Aramaic hymn preserved in the Ashkenazic liturgy has God tell Moses to use his, quote, horns of splendor to defend himself against the angels. A similar composition represents Moses as taunting the angels. This is my favorite. Quote, I will not descend. I will not descend until I prove myself a hero, until I gore your bodies with my horns. So, Horned Moses is kind of a badass. 
At the end of all of this, what's most interesting to me is how Jewish culture absorbed this idea that didn't come from them and further would be used to caricaturize them less than 300 years later. It's hard to say that this could be put any better than by Barbara Wish. Quote, The images embodied in the art and public spectacles were passed from generation to generation. In the end, Jews became known more for their representations than for any other identity, as Sandra Gilman has persuasively demonstrated for the 19th and 20th centuries. These stereotypes became such powerful European tropes that the consequences of the events described here may truly be recognized in the pogroms and in the Holocaust itself, and still haunt contemporary society. The conflicting discourses discussed in this essay underscore the complexity and deep-seated ambivalence of Jewish identity in Christian theology and reflect the unstable position of the Jew in society. At last, this brings us about to the modern day, as Barbara said, into the 20th century. In Joshua Trachtenberg's The Devil and the Jews, he recounts that a Kansas farmer refused to believe the rabbi was Jewish because he had no horns on his head. In Moses, A Life by Jonathan Kirsch, Kirsch describes how during World War II, a Jewish soldier woke up one night in his barracks to find a fellow draftee staring at his head. I've never met a Jew before, the fellow explained, and I wanted to see your horns. This is what Wish was talking about. Jews became known more for their representations than for any other identity. The images embodied in the art and public spectacles were passed from generation to generation. This is the double-edged sword of living in the modern day. The difference between pointing an accusing finger at the past and acknowledging the genuinely horrible deeds humankind has done to itself. The responsibility is figuring out exactly what to continue to pass on, generation to generation. A heavy responsibility. And that is everything I've learned about Horned Moses. I see no better way to end this than by sharing the words of Sigmund Freud, a very intelligent Jewish man as he questions his interpretive abilities at the end of his essay on Michelangelo's Moses. He starts by regarding his own opinion with that of another writer's. What if both of us have strayed onto a wrong path? What if we have taken too serious and profound a view of details which were nothing to the artist, details which he had introduced quite arbitrarily or for some purely formal reasons with no hidden intention behind. What if we have shared the fate of so many interpreters who have thought they saw quite clearly things which the artist did not intend, either consciously or unconsciously? I cannot tell. And finally, we may be allowed to point out, in all modesty, that the artist is no less responsible than his interpreters for the obscurity which surrounds his work. Thank you for listening.